Hello, my name is Lydia Kincaid. I'm the managing director for IIM. We're an early stage investing platform focusing on agriculture, animal health, and human health companies at the seed to series A stage. With me today, we have Lee Harris, who's our managing member for our organization. Um, and today, we have a two-part series to share with you. Uh, we will talk about constructing an early stage company portfolio and things to think about as you're doing that, um, as well as exits. They're both very much related, um, and we have a lot to share based on our experiences um, over the last 10 plus years of doing this together. Um, so, so Lee, maybe you can share your thoughts before we really dive in here um, on how about what's what's got you personally interested in investing in early stage companies? Then we can go into the specifics of the portfolio. From an investing uh, perspective, uh, I think early stage company uh, investments do provide an alternative to more of the traditional types of investments, such as stocks and bonds and maybe even real estate. Uh, some might say that early stage company investing is somewhat similar to a securities portfolio, but I, I beg to differ uh, with that. I have not seen uh, recently any kind of statistical analysis on that point. But I do think that it, from my standpoint, one of the reasons that I'm a very active investor in this space is I'm looking for diversification uh, from my traditional investments. As, as you know, I'm heavily invested in real estate, uh, apartments particularly, and then I have a securities portfolio as well. Uh, this is a, uh, an interesting alternative to that and one in which I have chosen to dollar cost average, uh, rather than trying to pick and choose which companies I think are winners. Uh, I, it's, it's really impossible at this early stage because it may be five, seven, even 10 years before a company really emerges as to whether it's going to be successful or not. We hope that it shows uh, uh, the, the green shoots of success much earlier than that, but you just never know. And so trying to say, I'm going to invest in this company and not in that company uh, is is difficult uh, to when you're talking about that kind of a timeline. Usually, if you're investing in a mutual fund or stocks, individual stocks, there's more liquidity uh, and you have an idea in terms of the quarterly earnings that uh, have, have been uh, distributed in the past as well as projected into the future, you have some kind of an idea where your valuation may be. There's just no way to know that here in the early stage space. So I like the diversification. I like the fact that, I, we're, we're, that we take a portfolio approach rather than trying to pick and choose. I really like the fact that we narrowed our focus into these three verticals uh, there are a lot of, a lot more early stage funding platforms, angel groups, seed stage groups that play the field. We've talked about this before where they invest in all sorts of ideas, uh, not large amounts of money. Uh, so they really don't make a lot of difference uh, in, in terms of uh, a company's cap table. Uh, and as there's not the domain expertise generally in these groups to decide if a company has the right stuff uh, to attract investment and to 
to, to develop an exit strategy. And that's why we have those domain experts in the ag space, in the animal health space, in the human health space. We don't invest in pharma, pharmaceuticals, but medical devices and services. And uh, we have people that understand that. And we do deep due diligence, which is something that's different than most of these angel groups. Um, so, uh, again, I like uh, this uh, element of investing as an alternative uh, and expect there to be outsized returns because of the way we approach it. All that is great advice and a great perspective, Lee. And you brought up dollar cost averaging. Um, and that would mean, you know, investing the same amount of money in every company that our group collectively decides to invest in. I mean, our structure um, is a little bit, I like to refer to it as a hybrid between a venture capital fund model and a traditional angel group model where our group of investors make individual investment decisions. Um, more and more of them as they like become more involved with our group, more and more of them decide to do that dollar cost averaging instead of picking and choosing just a few companies here and there. Um, but our team certainly treats each, each investment opportunity as the venture capital fund would. Um, the way we look at due diligence, Lee, which you alluded to, um, we really lean heavily on our domain experts within the group who are putting their money. I mean, they've got skin in the game, if you will, in these investments um, and, a, and a vested interest in making smart investments. So we utilize their expertise. Um, in our due diligence process and even our screening process, a lot of our members are very engaged and help us work through companies um, at a pretty early level um, in our process. Um, but our team evaluates those companies and we put together a comprehensive due diligence report um, and building that diverse portfolio instead of just a small handful has really seemed to be beneficial for members of our group, even if someone is not an agriculture expert, if you will, they've developed a level of trust with other members of our group and our team as well um, with the resources and time that we put into our due diligence efforts and um, that they feel comfortable investing in companies in that industry. Um, and I think that's a great approach for investors because as you said as well, we really don't know at the very early stages, um, especially some of these companies are pre-rounded or maybe they're still just launching clinical trials um, and testing out their product or field trials if they're an agricultural product. Um, it's really, really difficult you know, nobody has a crystal ball. It's difficult to know which companies five to seven or more years from now will be the biggest winners. Um, and so by creating a diverse portfolio with maybe a smaller amount per company than you would if you were just investing in two or three companies, um, then you've got a good baseline for success there. Um, I mean, we know based on data um, that most of the companies that, that get venture capital dollars will fail. Um, one of the statistics that I pulled for our conversation um, was from a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. Um, his name's Shaker Ghosh. Um, what he found was that up to 75% of venture-backed startups don't succeed. And he defined success as returning cash to their investors. Um, he also showed in his research that 30 to 40% of those 75% liquidate their assets with investors losing all of their money. Um, so those are pretty grim statistics if you look at them at face value. But I, I do believe as well, Lee, that based on our heavy due diligence and our involvement with companies after we invest as well, maybe that's a board seat or a formal advisor role, keeping constant contact with our portfolio companies in order to help them grow. I think all of those activities that are all part of our, you know, 
part, part of our process now. We really are helping set our portfolio up for success. And I know I know our investors appreciate those efforts as well. What else, Lee? Well, Elon Musk, Musk says that uh, his, his philosophy about risk, he says risk is fuel. Now, I think that's a, an interesting uh, analysis, and I'm not exactly sure what he means by that, but this, this is a huge risk that we take when we invest in startups and early-stage companies. As you pointed out, there's a very large failure rate here. So some, some might say, why would I take the risk of making that kind of an investment in the first place? Uh, I say we manage risk. That's what I'm all about, and that's what you're all about. We we don't want to take risk. Taking risk seems to me like it's taking a flyer. It's just rolling the dice, going to Vegas. That's not what we do. Uh, and as a result, we're trying to stack the deck through our due diligence process and through this limited uh, number of verticals that we in which we focus. We're trying to stack the deck in favor of our investors. Uh, to reduce as much of the risk as we can. So I would posit that our portfolio probably won't lose 75% of, of, of its capital. Uh, and so far that that's been borne uh, out, we have some, some companies that are struggling. Uh, I think we have maybe one zombie company. A zombie company is one that's effectively dead uh, and will not returned anything and is still in business trying to figure out a way to liquidate or sell or whatever. But we've, uh, we've seen an exit already a couple years ago, a very nice exit. Um, and so with, with one known failure at one uh, demonstrated exit, I think our track record's pretty good. Again, we're not making any representation that, that we won't have more failures, but uh, we manage risk, and because we manage risk the way we do, we've we've been able to uh, to have less of, of of the failures than is traditional in the industry. I think so. The whole uh, Elon Musk notion of risk being fuel uh, it, that sounds pretty aggressive to to us, and we're probably at the other end of the spectrum in the way we view risk. Mm-hmm. And another way, Lee, that, that we try to stay very focused um, in terms of asset allocation is thinking about the different risk profiles for those three verticals that we do invest in, agriculture, animal health, and human health. Um, we've stayed with those three verticals for quite a while now, not only because of domain expertise, but because there is a different risk profile within each of those industries if you look at the landscape of startups in those spaces. Um, I, view, I view agriculture as a smaller subset uh, maybe like a broader life sciences industry, if you were to couch companies together. Um, agriculture is, is certainly smaller as a market than human health. So there's less startup companies, less potential acquirers. Um, there certainly can be outsized returns, and there is evidence of that as well. But in general, the M&A activity is a little bit more limited in agriculture. I think the risk is lower for the companies that we invest in um, the risk of failure, I should say, and lower for those companies. Typically, they have to see really substantial traction before they can they can attract true venture capital dollars, um, not just from us, but from other later stage firms as well. We're very cognizant of that. Um, so I think agriculture companies are a nice component of our three verticals. 
animal health um, is in a huge market, we've decided to focus on um, production animals. So if you think of companion animal, dog, pets, all those, th- those are not something that we invest in. Um, we invest in any protein animals is what some people refer to it as. Um, and technologies that enable that market to grow and be more efficient. Um, I think that those companies from a risk perspective, there's also a decent amount of M&A activity. Again, not as huge as the human health company, but the risk isn't as great to get a product to market. Uh, you do have to do oftentimes animal trials and other types of studies uh, to validate your product and to prove its safety and efficacy. That's that's certainly an arduous process in animal health. It's not as arduous as human health. So it's an, a quicker to market um, approach than maybe these human health companies and, and the return profile reflects that as well. Uh, and human health, as I mentioned already a couple of times, is that just the massive market, um, but the risk can be quite high if you don't select the right kind of companies. Um, if they haven't demonstrated that they're on a good pathway to success and they're getting closer to FDA approval, um, maybe they've already done some studies in humans and whatnot. There's different factors that can mitigate the risks associated with investing in human health companies, but the failure rate is quite high with human health companies. There could be something along the way in any of those product development pathways or approval processes that just cuts the company out completely um, from being able to be successful. Some of those are out of investors' hands. Um, so, so that's how I view our three verticals from a risk perspective. And with human health companies, maybe those will generate the highest returns for taking the highest risk. We've yet to see that play completely out since we're still pretty early um, in terms of generating exits and even failures as well. Um, but that's been our theory in terms of asset allocation and in what the data tends to show in terms of exits. Um, uh, I would also add that the uh, from a risk standpoint, uh, we're not in the tech space per se. There are uh, tech applications, both software uh, and AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning applications that uh, are woven through many of the companies in which we invest. But we're not the the, the Silicon Valley uh, darling of uh, of, an, of an AI firm or a software a SaaS company. There's some SaaS applications, of course, subs- more subscription type of applications. Those are the companies that have gotten so much money in the past uh, from the, the venture world, and there have been some huge returns, and there have been some colossal failures there. We prefer to be more steady eddy. Uh, we like to see, we, we don't mind hardware. Hardware is hard. Everybody says that in this business, and it is. However, if, if you properly vet a company with a hardware play, uh, and particularly if there is uh, a companion subscription type of service, uh, that can be very compelling, and it can also reduce the risk. So uh, the Razor Razor Blade model, for example, we have a one company uh, that we invested in more recently that that has a very large razor expense, if you will, but the recurring revenue on the subscription service is much more enormous in terms of potential. So, uh, and it's a sticky type of, of business. I think that's the other thing we look for is uh, if, if there is some sort of recurring revenue, how sticky is it? 
Uh, and again, the stickier, uh, the more of the risk is managed. That's right. One of the things we absolutely look at in our due diligence process is churn. And as a company's ability to renew contracts and customers stick with them over time, uh, that that is one of the most critical factors, I would say, in any sort of software or subscription service company um, to see them I mean, as a good, great measure of how happy your customers are uh, and their ability to grow from there as well. Um, and, and speaking of revenue, uh, we also think a lot about staging of the companies that we invest in and how that is a diversification component, component of our portfolio. And what that means is, is that some of our companies might be pre-revenue, some are post-revenue, some are a true seed stage company, first professional money in the door, um, putting together a real board, as we've talked about on other podcasts, um, really professionalizing the company, um, which they should have laid the groundwork for that anyway, but oftentimes it is the seed stage investors that demand that. Um, so we've certainly invested in the early stage of a seed stage, uh, but also in Series A, where maybe the company is more on a growth path. Um, they've already figured out their uh, their go-to-market strategy. They've figured out their niche in the market. They've got a growing customer base that's generating real revenue uh, at a substantial speed as well. So, so we like to have companies at varying levels in that staging process as well. Lee, would you like to add anything about staging? Well, I think that we should point out the fact that we'll do uh, pre-seed, we'll do seed, we'll do series A. We typically don't jump into series B and beyond for the initial investment in a company. We, I think we, we may have, but that's not our, our strategy. We, we, we will consider a series B investment in a company that we previously invested in, whether it's already once in the seed stage and maybe a second time in series A. Uh, but, uh, the, the, the staging, I think the, the laddering effect that you get with duration is a critical part of analyzing, uh, the investment, uh, thesis. And if, all you do is invest in companies that are going to be seven to ten years out in terms of, uh, of of the duration of the investment and knowing whether there's going to be a profitable exit or a failure. That's tough. Uh, it's tough psychologically. It's tough financially. Having a company that may have an exit uh, path in three or four years and another one in six years and some of the others that are longer duration, eight or nine years, having that mixture makes just a lot of sense, especially as you develop a portfolio, especially if you have an investor group. People generally get a little antsy if they're having to wait seven to 10 years to see whether their investment's going to work. Uh, and if uh, if we can show some, some progress, as we've already done with our ag exit that we had a couple years ago, uh, that's that sets a very nice stage. We have several companies that we expect will uh, have a shot at an exit in the next 12 to 24 to 30 months. Uh, and then we have some that are uh, much longer uh, runway-wise than that. And speaking of runway, it's really important in this environment to, to make sure there's enough capital to, to see a company through uh, these more difficult times we're in from an economic standpoint. So that has to also be part of the 
the analysis of the, when, when we're constructing a portfolio, do the companies that uh, in which we're investing, are they going to make it? Uh, they may have a great idea, a great founding team, uh, but they need time. And do they have enough money uh, to get through uh, that time period, especially when it's tougher to raise funds right now? Uh, and, and so, again, that's kind of a drill down into this whole uh, strategy, investment strategy and portfolio construct that we're talking about. So one more, one more thing I'd like to add to this conversation, Lee, is if one of our listeners is you know, thinking about making, starting to make investments in the early stage space, uh, or maybe they already have and they're refining their process. Um, we've talked about a few things that investors should think about uh, as they're considering moving forward. Um, one thing that I recommend to investors is you think about as an individual, how much time do you really have to commit or that you want to commit to doing a robust, to having a robust due diligence process, managing the portfolio, um, and not just from our team, but other venture capital teams as well. I mean, it can take 40 hours, 60 hours or longer. I mean, sometimes it's a months long process to complete due diligence on a company. And that can get really, really tiresome for someone trying to go out and do this on their own for their own personal portfolio. Um, so what I feel like we bring to the table as a professional team, um, uh, individuals who are very specialized in legal, we have professional counsel who works with our team um, on term sheet negotiation and really understanding the intricacies of that um, and maybe even past term sheets that the company has entered into and what those implications are as well. We've got an attorney, we have an IP attorney as well who helps us look at intellectual property for companies. We have the domain experts, not only of the investors in our group, but also consultants uh, that we utilize as part of our process as well. Um, and we have accountants who manage back-end financing. So this is really a team effort um, to manage this investment portfolio for our investors. And I think it can get pretty overwhelming pretty fast for somebody trying to go out there and do this on their own. So I, I usually recommend aligning yourself with a group of some sort um, or maybe a professional organization uh, that can help lighten the load a, a little bit and share the the sort of work, um, work burden that it takes to really vet these companies and make good investments in the space. Um, what else, Lee, uh, maybe advice do you have for, for potential investors who are interested in this? Think, think about this. If uh, first of all, don't invest any money that you can't afford to lose. <clears throat> so, yeah. as I say, this is an alternative investment strategy, and any alternative investment strategy should uh, begin with that mindset that okay, if I lose all the money I'm investing here, it doesn't impact me adversely in terms of my lifestyle or or my rainy day fund or whatever the case might be. Now, think about also the fact that you may only want to invest uh, $5,000, $10,000 in a company. How are you going to do that? Uh, how are you going to find a company that will take your five dollars or $10,000? Uh, that's why, whether it's our group or another group, it's really important to, to, to join forces with other investors in this space. Uh, you might say, I've got $50,000 to invest in this alternative strategy. And maybe what you do is uh, say out of dollar cost average, 
in the next 10 companies. And that's my $50,000. Again, trying to do that on your own and do all the research and understand the domain elements is extremely difficult. Uh, And so again, this is kind of a pitch for what Innovation in Motion IIM is all about, but uh, you and the rest of your team are pros at uh, figuring out what the good investments appear to be, the great founders, uh, and uh, try to do it by yourself is is really, really tough, both in terms of the check size. I mean, if you have $100,000 to invest in one company, that might be a little different, but most people don't. Most people want to invest smaller amounts, and we recommend invest smaller amounts in a larger number of companies and diversify your risk. And uh, you know, again, for all the other reasons we've cited, uh, that, that's been a sound strategy so far. I think that's great advice, Lee. Um, and we shared at the beginning, we'll talk more about exits as well. We'll utilize our time at our next podcast to go into more detail about exits as it certainly is related um, to a portfolio strategy for investing in early stage companies. So thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you next time.